Welcome to Mindset, Mood and Movement, a systemic approach to human behavior, performance and well-being. Our psychological, emotional and physical health are all connected. And my guests and I endeavor to share knowledge, strategies and tools for you to enrich your life and work. Hello. What can a 500-mile cycle race in Spain teach us about performance, business, mindset, and overcoming difficulties and challenges? I am delighted to be joined today by Clayton, Clayton Trotsky. And Clayton is a leadership trainer and facilitator and also a 500-mile bike racer. (laughs) And Clayton's got an amazing story of a race he recently did. And I'm so excited to share this because it's not just a great story about a bike race. There's so many pieces to this chapter and Clayton and I have spoken about how leadership, how business, how life are all their adversities as challenges and how do we overcome them. And I think there's something fascinating about this story that you're going to love. Welcome, Clayton. Great to have you on. Yeah, thank you so much, Sal, for inviting me. It's, it's a real nice platform for people like me to share what we do and also some of our experiences with someone like you. It's fantastic. Thank you. Amazing. Great to have you. So we're going to get more into Clayton's work as well, but we're going to go straight in because when I heard this story, I was like, you did what? (laughs) What did you do in September? And Clayton's like, oh, I did a 500 mile bike race. I'm like, oh yeah, whereabouts? What, in in the Netherlands? And it's no, no, in the mountains of Spain. So I want to know how you managed to get yourself into, it sounds like quite a hot environment as well, to on the 500 mile bike race. Take me through, how did you get to the start line? What got you onto that bike race? You know what? A couple of years ago, I've been cycling for a very long time, 20 years. And a couple of years ago, 2021, I joined some of my friends back home in South Africa. And we cycled from Johannesburg to Cape Town, a thousand miles. And we did it in eight days. We raised a lot of money. And I was like, wow, I want to do more of that. And um, in Europe, there are a lot, well, all across the world, really, there are lots of these ultra gravel, ultra marathon gravel races. And this is one of them. So it's all off-road. Mostly it's off-road. And this was one that really interested me because of the landscape. I, My wife and I love deserts. Whenever we can go on holiday, we go to a desert and we just love the secludedness of it. And Badlands, this is the, this is the fourth year of Badlands running. It's a relatively new race, but the images and the, 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 the terrain you cover was incredible. So they normally sell out quite quickly, these races. So you're going to a bit of a muffry system and they only allow a certain number of people because of the environment. So you, you literally enter the race a year in advance. So I knew November 2022 that I was doing the race in September. So a long time. It's a long time for the race to play in your mind. I'll tell you that much. But that's how then I basically started training, properly training about five, five six months before the race, long distance rides in the UK. And I did a, I did a ride around London called the, uh, the Ring, Around the Ring of Smoke Challenge which is a 200-mile a race through the night around London. It was my first overnight experience. And I felt great because my wife doesn't think I can stay awake longer than or later than half past nine. So I totally showed her that I was capable of staying awake through all the night. Uh, the, the, the funny thing was in that race, at two in the morning, I was sitting as the only sober person at McDonald's in Guildford, which was a really weird feeling, <laughs> being so dirty and so tired. And then there's all these young people coming back from wherever they were getting their McDonald's. And I was, uh, so, with, so all this was preparation for my, for my race. And that's that, how I got to the Sodler. Wow. That's, that's so cool. And 
it's so interesting, isn't it? When we hear about people overcoming adversity, whether it's a race or setting up a business, we often hear the glory story. We often hear, oh, you, you did that race or you set up that business, you, you created that amazing product or service. We don't hear the graph. We don't hear the prep. And I think it's such an interesting and vital part of understanding, not only the bike race, which of course we will go into in depth, but that's how we apply ourselves to life and business because prep really sets up output. If the preparation is not good, whether that's for fitness or whether that's for whatever it is the output needs to be, then it's unlikely to go your way. So the prep's really important. I'm curious as well about how much prep did you do for, it's a 500 mile race, which is more than double the one you're, you're, you're speaking about in London. And it sounds like you had a sense and you've got heat. So you're going towards the southern part of Spain. And uh, how do you prepare for that physically? And how do you prepare for that mentally? Physically, I had to, uh, for four months before the race, I did an average of over 220 to 250 miles a week on the bike. So that's about 13 to 16 hours on the saddle. So three rides in the week, two big rides on the weekend for four months. The weather, I don't have an indoor trainer. So if it was bad weather, I was out there. And they, then I was carrying my gear because you needed a lot of your own saddlebags and, 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 and hydration packs. So as I was accumulating these things, I would, I would wear those things too. So physically, oh, I've called me stubborn. I've, I've always been a bit sporty. And when it comes to sport, I like a challenge. So with the race, physically and, me and, and mentally, I was very co confident that I would be able to finish it. I saw myself, mentally, I could visualize myself crossing the finish line a million times. I saw myself at the end because on the YouTube videos that you see from previous events, you can see what the finish looks like. And I visualized myself crossing that finish line, hugging my wife, having a beer. And it ended up being nothing like that, but... I saw myself doing that so many times and I never once doubted that I wouldn't make it. And that's when it comes to sport, something maybe I'm a bit more comfortable with and knowing my own body because I've been doing it for a long time. I was very comfortable that I could do it. But then leading up to the race, the little bit of doubt creeps in here and then. I was just so happy to get it started. When that, when that starting gun went off, I was so relieved because finally I could stop thinking about it because it, it consumed my mind for months and then weeks before the race even more so and then that week of the race i hardly slept and you're supposed to sleep a lot so you get really because the race you're not going to sleep much at all in fact i slept um, five hours four and a half hours in 66 hours so you don't sleep at all but i didn't sleep anything i had such bad sleep leading up to the event i was just things were going through my brain what if i'm lost where did i go and then things you didn't think of before so that little bit of doubt, even though you're confident in your abilities, that, that little bit of doubt does creep in for sure. Amazing. That's so interesting. And, and I love to hear just how much distance you're doing, because this is the thing with anything endurance related, you, you've got to put the miles and you've got to understand that what we're often calling the weights, weight training arena, like time under tension. And, and I would say that psychologically as well, you need certain level of time under tension to translate that into longer duration, certainly in physical activity. I'm fascinated by your mental uh, picture of finishing the race. And there's a lot we know, uh, there's been studies done on this for years around visualization, whether you do, certainly in sport performance, if you do the sport, uh, there was a study I saw years ago, which was about um, basketball players. They got a bunch of guys to shoot hoops. They got another bunch to visualize the hoop and it all going in and shooting. And they got a guy just to visualize him. And it's no surprise that 
The guy simply visualizing it came last. The guy shooting hoops came second. But the guys visualizing action hoops came a big chunk further in their performance. And, and I find this fascinating. As a more recent piece of science, and I think we'll all love this, is the predictive brain theory or processing, that our brain is predicting what's going to happen. Now, if this is a robust theory, which it seems to me, then we are already presuming an outcome. Hence, if we are seeing failure coming, whether that's in our work or in our race or whatever that piece of thing we want to achieve in, it's probably going to make out that way. So it's not just a wishful thinking. This is actually orientating your brain and your body and your abilities to how do you achieve. And what you said there, see in the end, visualize it. That's, that's incredible. And of course, and we'll get through the story. I know you ended and I know you're safe because you're here. <laughs> yeah. But I know there's a massive <laughs> drama in the middle, which we're going to get to shortly. Um, and lastly, I just want to speak to the point around that buildup. So much interesting. I call it the anxiety gap. So yeah. when you're doing something, uh, and of course, the case in point, you're going to start that race. And it's a week before. And instead of sleeping and having a lovely time, the mind is feeling it. See, and in a way, this is the anxiety system showing its uh, propensity to problem solve and to figure out. The problem when it goes into overdrive is then we end up not sleeping and yeah. worrying. It is a case in point, isn't it? So just get on with it. <laughs> yeah. when, when you're that close to achieving what you're going to do, it's we need to start. Because when we start, ah, everything comes out of the head. It comes into the body. It becomes yeah. embodied and processed. Amazing. Clayton, that's, that's just such a fascinating run up to the start. So take us. It's, it's 500 miles. What's the terrain like? What's the temperature like? How's the first day? It was, yeah, we started at 8 o'clock in the morning on a Sunday in Granada. There were about 350 riders in total. And for the first time, it was raining. Every race, this is, like I said, this was the fourth edition, I think. And the three editions before, some of them got into the 50 degrees Celsius. But the average was about 40 in the high 30s, low 40s. And that's what we all went through expecting. We got to Grenada, my wife and I, a couple of days before the race. And it was predicted rain. At the start, and this was like, no, this is impossible. It was during the floods in Madrid. So this rain in Spain, had just you know, came all over. And um, we actually started in some drizzle, which is unknown. And they just changed the route because some of our route takes us through dry riverbeds, desert riverbeds. But in times of flood, there will be the water in them. And even if there wasn't water, we would not be able to pass through because of the mud. It makes what they call this peanut butter mud. It gets everywhere. You can't, you can't ride. It's, it's, you can't even walk through it. So... It's really bad. So they actually changed the route because the organizers could not take the risk for us to go down a, a river. <laughs> we might, we might not all come back. So we started at 8 in the morning, and there's a lot of climbing in this race. In total, we climbed 15,000, 16,000 meters, which is about 45,000 feet of elevation gain. So we climb a lot with all our bags. And yeah, we started off, I was concentrating very hard because of my when I was a bit younger, racing, riding on the bike, I was a bit more competitive in my age group. So that testosterone still there. And I was fighting hard to say, Clayton, just relax. Let those guys who want to go racing go off and do their own thing. You just... So I was in control of myself there. Nice and slow start. Nice and relaxed. And I was at a good place. And I'm, I met a couple of people because this is the great thing about it. You meet some incredible people. I cycled the first day with people from Belgium, people from Ireland, people from the UK. Germans, it was just incredible. And then when most of, lots of parts were by yourself, but then I met the only other South African in the race, funny enough, <laughs> we bumped into each other. And 
we rode together for a long time and we finished that night. We got to a place we wanted to get to, a small village called Gaul, G-O-R. And that was 244 kilometers into the race. Got there the first night. The, the little village of Gaul, they know the race passes through there. So they keep the pub open for 24 hours to serve food. And also they allow you to sleep on the floor. Now it's a concrete floor. I didn't get any sleep. So half an hour sleep. Then I woke the other South African guy up and, and another friend of mine, who I, a friend that I met, and uh, Dave, and we started riding together at two in the morning. We left Gaul. And about seven in the morning, I just, I thought my chain fell off my bike. And I said to the guys, it was pitch, pitch black. We were on our way to the highest point of the race called Cala Alto. It was an 80 kilometer gradual climb uphill for 80 kilometers, 50 miles uphill. At about seven in the morning, it was still dark. It was freezing because now we're in the middle of the desert. We had a very high point. I all got our puffer jackets on riding the bikes and my chain fell off. So I put my chain back on, but there was no drive. Something had broken. Luckily for me, the South African guy who was with me knew a lot about technical stuff about bicycles. And he said to me, he thinks he knows what it is. He was able to pinpoint to me when it broke. And he took out a small little wire that's in my free hub that keeps things in place for your drive to, to work through your bicycle. That wire had broken, which means I could not pedal anymore. And we tried to fix it. We, could not, we couldn't fix it. And these two gentlemen, they tried to help me by... We took two tubes, two tire tubes, put them together, tied one around Zandi, the other South African guy's hand, seat post, and one around my handlebar, and he was pulling me. But it was futile because we were going uphill, and at the same time, he was pulling me. Dave was pushing me from behind, but they couldn't do it. It was futile. We were going uphill, and they were just burning a lot of matches, as we say. I said to them, go, just go. And I would walk. My plan was then to walk to the highest point of the race, which was about another 20 kilometers to go. And then freewheel from there to the next town, which is another 40 kilometers, but it's all downhill. So I could do that. And in that moment, I thought it was done. I thought my race was done. Because where am I going to find, in the middle of the Sierra Nevada, where am I going to find this little wire? That, and yeah, I got pretty emotional. Because of all the, the hard work training for so long, all the hours sacrificing, and then also financial implications that I'd made to get there, all the money to get to Granada, all the equipment the equipment's a lot of money. All of that, I phoned my, actually FaceTimed my wife and I got signal. And it was still dark. She couldn't see me. And the signal was really bad. But I was crying. I was actually crying. And I, was, I just said, it's over. I can't believe it's over. And uh, at, at that moment, another cyclist stopped next to me. Happened to be an Australian. And he was like, are you okay? And as we all try and be very proud, the tears disappeared. And I said, I'm fine. I'm fine. And I couldn't really speak to my wife because the signal was so bad. And then I just decided, you know what? I've got five days to finish the race. My, my aim was to finish it within three. So now my, my, my goals have changed. I'm not going to finish it in three. But come hell or high water, I'm going to finish this thing. Even if it's five days, I'm going to finish it in five days. And the longest it takes. That's what I, that was what I said to myself. That's amazing. So... I can only try and Im Im imagine that, <laughs> not only like going uphill for basically 50 miles. I live at the top of a hill and it's about a mile and it's a bit of an effort for me. <laughs> so 50, I kind of with full respect, but in terms of you're there, like you've done the training, you've done everything you need to do and something like a piece of wire, which you are relying on this inert thing fails and there is no other option. And of course, it's, it's fascinating, isn't it? When suddenly you've, we've well, controlled all the controllables, as we say, in certainly yeah. in the sport field. Control the controllables, but what you can't control, and yet it still has such an impact. 
And then I'm fascinated to know how, if you're, if you're okay to go here, what's it like in that pain point when you're right there and that, that, that literally that misery point of it's, it's over. What, what's that like for you? What's it like viscerally? What's it like emotionally? Tell me. Oh, you know, it's, you feel very sorry for yourself. You start thinking very, you feel sorry for yourself. And uh, it's almost like that John McEnroe moment where you, if you had a record, you'd probably try and break it <laughs> because of, you have that, why me? Why am I, why me? Because you prepare, like you say, you control the controllables, you prepare for everything. But this part that broke, it's such a weird part to break. It's like someone said to you, well, hey, don't forget when you drive down to Cornwall, remember to take a spare roof with, because your roof will break. Your roof will never break, right? Exactly the same thing. No one will tell you to take this piece of wire with you because it's unlikely. So I was just, yeah, you're going to that pity party. Why me? Why, why has this happened to me? And yeah, so it was tough. I was very, very low. And of course I can resonate with that. The, the, the pain of like defeat in some ways, the defeat and also what you said, and I'm really intrigued by how your, your mind works on this because you've done so much work physically. You've done the mental work. You've done all that visual preparation psychologically, physically. If I was coaching you at that point, I'm, I'd be so pumped. Like you've got this and you've done everything you need to do. And then of course. I don't know, I love this about adversity. Adversity is horrible, right? It's not meant to be nice. That's why it's called adversity. It's adverse. It, it's yeah. uncomfortable. It's what we do in those moments that really define how we grow, how we learn, how we overcome. And, and I, and I want to speak to the deep human part of you in that because something changed. Yeah. You told your wife, like it's done and yet it wasn't. What changed? When, how did you get that decision, that, that mental decision? Like, okay, I was going to do it in three. But I could do it in five. How did you switch? You know what? I think you, what I did was I was able to contextualize it. I don't know how you compartmentalize it. Compartmentalize I can't say the word now. But thinking of the bigger picture, right? People that don't know cycling, if I told them I finished this race, they don't ask me how long it takes. They just go, wow, that's incredible. And my wife's there supporting me. And at the same time, you've got this, this website called Dot Watcher where everybody who I'd shared on my WhatsApp friends, I'd shared my, my doc to. So they were following my, my progress. And I knew they were all watching. And I was like, you know what? They'll be so proud if I finish this after all of this. And it's just that click that says, yes, sure, I'm not going to do what I wanted to do, which was finish in the top half of the race. I'm in the top half of the field. I'm just going to, but I'm still going to finish it. And I'm going to try and find this part. While I was walking, the signal was very, very bad. I was trying to Google bicycle shops and where were the nearest ones. And the, the nearest ones were Almeria, which I would funny enough pass the next day on the race. When I got to the top of that mountain, uh, Cala Alto, which took me a long time, I, I can't tell you exactly what time I got there, but then I could freewheel on a tar road to the next village called Gerkal. When I got there, I, no one speaks English, absolutely no one, which makes it so nice. It's so authentic. And I got to this, it was lunchtime, and there were these three Spanish families enjoying their lunch. And with Google Translate, I was able to tell them, I'm in a race, my bike is broken, can I get a taxi from here to Almeria, which is about 50 kilometers away. And I knew it was going to be an expensive taxi, but I was like, can I get a taxi from here? And all three of the families, I, was, I addressed what I was saying to one particular lady who was giving me attention. The other three tables, the, the other tables were just listening to my story. And as in a heartbeat, they, the one gentleman on the other table started phoning a friend of his who owns a bicycle shop in Almeria uh, called Aventura Bikes. 
And the lady I was talking to was phoning taxis. And another lady on a different table said to me, listen, you can leave your bike in my shop because I need you to take the wheel. So I don't have to take my entire bike on the taxi, only the wheel, which I explained to them. And the next minute, a taxi driver arrives. He must have, he doesn't speak English at all, but he is a very old gentleman. And he must have heard that it was an emergency because he was driving like a Formula One to Amparia. I thought I was going to die in the taxi. But we got to, we got to the bicycle shop and the specific, the part that I broke is very specific to the brand of bicycle. So I have a giant bicycle and the shop, he was a dealer of trick bicycles. So the, my chances of him having the part was, was small. And when I got there, he was a very lovely gentleman, but also as old as time, he was a very old gentleman. He had had the shop for decades, no English. And I, sh- I showed him the broken piece and he took out this massive box of spares that you keep from years and years and of spare parts, just throwing them in a box. There were literally hundreds of spare parts in there. And him and I started looking through this thing. And I, as we were looking, I was thinking to myself, there's no way this, we got to find it here. But anyway, he pulls out a wire <laughs> and I don't know. I can't remember. I was speechless. Just, he pulled it out and he said, is this it? And I went, that's it. How did he, it's impossible that he had it, but he did. And anyway, I paid six euros for that little part. We then sped off. Me, a taxi driver came with me into the shop. Him and I sped off back to Fregal. My bike was in the shop, got there. And I, the thing is, I started to fit it. And I'm not a very technically gifted guy with my hands on the bicycle. But I managed to do it because there's these very intricate little parts you've got to put in. And I managed to fit it. And it worked. And when, it, when I put it on and I could feel it was working, I, just, my, I, I jumped up and I, went, and I just shouted. And the poor lady who had been helping me all the time, she ran over and gave me a big hug. I think they could see in my face that I was so relieved that this had happened, that I had fixed it. And since it broke, it was now eight hours had passed for me walking all that way. And I, cycling shoes are not made for walking. So they, they're carbon fiber shoes. They're very narrow. So I had massive blisters on my toes and my feet, my heels. So I had to eat something because now I was, I hadn't eaten since seven. And I quickly, before I got on my bike, I had a big meal at that little restaurant where the lady was sitting. And thank goodness, just before siesta time. <laughs> and then off I went and I was heading for the coast. And I didn't have time to update my wife or family to tell them I'm back on. They could see from watching the dock that I was moving, moving again because I was getting these messages from them. And I'm actually getting a bit emotional now, but I was actually getting these little messages from them to say, see you back on the bike, go, go, go. It was just so cool. And then, yeah, I had 170 kilometers to go to the nearest coastal town called San Jose. Dad, <laughs> I was just spellbound about that. Oh my gosh, that's just, in some ways, it's, it's, it's crazy in terms of this one piece, this one piece. I couldn't visualize yeah. this tiny piece <laughs> of wire, this it's a thing. And yet, it's the implications of everything around it are so big for everything that you've done, everything you were doing. And, and, and I'm just, I'm incredibly touched. I was with you in my mind there seeing this, this rustic village, this, this gorgeous sense of humanity coming out yeah. to help another person in the spirit of the whole thing. <laughs> it's absolutely wonderful. And of course, isn't it wonderful that you, you've just met the moment, you just dealt with what was going on and you've doing, it's, it's, it's a case of, okay, what next? What now? What can I do? It's that beautiful part of the human brain going into executive function. Okay, what can I do? What's possible? How can I recalibrate? And it really shows a, a very creative aspect of you and a very tenacious one. In, in neuro, neurological terms, we, we talk in, certainly in my space about how does a person operate under stress? 
And there are four states. Nice and simple. There's flow state when everything's lovely, you feel safe, yeah. it's all going well. There's fight state when you're going towards the problem. Whatever the problem is, you're going towards it, you're working on it with confidence. There's flight state, which is, I just want to get out of this. I'm trying to not this to happen. I don't want it to go away. And there's free state, such as I'm just giving up. I'm walking away. I'm, whether that's the bike race, the business, or whatever it is. And we operate in these states, and half the time, we don't even know we see this. The sweet spot in definitely in racing, in sport, and, and I would say in business, most of the time is to mm. operate in a fight state, which is going towards the problem. Um, not not going to talk about um, beating people up. We're talking about dealing neurologically with going towards problems or the flow state, like how can you get to flow? And problems will always be stresses. And it's how you respond to that is is it's quite quite incredible. And your story just talk, tells me that you've gone to the flight, fight state. You're like, yeah, what can I do? How can I go? <laughs> I, like, <laughs> I can picture the, or the Formula One star taxi. <laughs> Maybe it was Alonso's dad or somebody like that taking you along. That's amazing. Yeah, cool. no, so you, we've incredible. gone through that. That is just incredible. Then you're back on. So it's game on, right? It's game on. The bike's on. You're on. I can't believe you haven't slept because I'm a big sleeper, but okay. Yeah. But what's what's it like from here? You, you've you come through this this hellhole of adversity and you're back on. Take us through the next piece. Oh, so actually the next piece is probably one of my favorite pieces, fondest memories, because I was back on the bike and now I was just grateful. That's all. I was just grateful that I was there. I was no longer, why me? Or the pity party that I experienced for a short period of time when my bike was broken, I was now just exceptionally grateful to be. And that was an incredible moment. And I also, it helps that I was going through some of the best scenery of the race. And I was all on my own. And I was just, I was almost like you say, that flow stays. I wasn't thinking about it. I was just mile after mile, I had 180 kilometers to do to reach the, to reach the town. And I started late afternoon. And I met up with some incredible people that I'd rode with the day before. And just, we, we got to San Jose together at about half past one in the morning, got there. And there was a pizza place open. I can't believe it. It was like an oasis because I was so hungry. And we got to this pizza place and I ordered a ginormous pizza. And I thought to myself, I need to sleep now because my body's saying, Clayton, you can't go anymore. You need to sleep. And these two guys were talking about going a bit further. And I was like, you know what, guys, I'm going to hit anchor. Um, and I ordered uh, a pizza and bolognese to, bolognese to eat the next morning because I was thinking I'm just going to go. I'm in the morning already, so I'm not one. So I found this small accommodation that on bookings.com said it had availability. So I went over there because it was across the road. And I woke up the receptionist fast asleep. And I booked a little room and I got four hours of sleep. So just over four and a half hours. So it's quarter five hours of sleep during the entire race. One of the guys I had met up just before I got to the coastal town I said to you, my plan was to finish, and that was at 260 kilometers, but also had 6,000 meters of climbing plus. And he said to me, look, he done it last year. It's impossible to do it from here. Normally, everyone does the last day from Almeria, which is from where we were, another two and a half hours away. So I said to him, I didn't say anything, but I thought to myself, challenge accepted. So I, had a, I washed my clothes, because you, you wear the same clothes. <laughs> washed my clothes in the shower had four hours, four and a half hours of sleep, ate my bolognese the next morning. They didn't give me a, there was no cutlery in the room. So like a barbarian, I was eating it. Have you ever eaten spaghetti with your hands? It's, in, it's incredibly difficult. But I summed it in. I knew I had to eat. And then that, that morning, all along the coast to Almeria, over the mountains, sun coming up, it was 
unbelievable. I phoned my wife. I listened to a, a book that, was, that I downloaded. And I was also, again, in a flow state. Got to a town just before Almeria. Had a, two amazing chocolate croissants. I just remember these small little things at coffee. And on I went to Almeria, bought more croissants, <laughs> put them in my pockets. And then I had a lot of climbing to do. And I was just in this, uh, at the end of the race, I remember lots of the guys I spoke to when we got to the finish line, because he spent a couple of days afterwards just telling war stories to other cyclists. And so many people complained about the climb out of Almeria, saying it was very technical, very rocky. It's, it's a very difficult climb to do, especially with the bikes we were riding. We were riding gravel bikes, not mountain bikes. And I can't remember that being difficult. And I just, I can't remember the climb. And I was like, but I can't remember it being difficult. So I was just in that moment where everything was just, I was feeling a million bucks. And I actually, I, I rode until in, through the night. I caught a couple of guys just before midnight, two lovely Belgian guys that I'd met day one. We met up again and we had something to eat at a little bar. And then we said, we're going to finish. It's 50 Ks to go. Still a lot of climbing, but we're going to finish it today. And then I, then I actually caught up with one of the guys who was with me when my bike broke. And we rode together to the end. And he finished just ahead of me, actually. But we've, I finished at half past three that morning. I was actually riding with a guy from Kenya, Michael, and his light had broken. His light had died. And he can't see. And he's in the middle of the desert in his mountains. And I thought to myself, I can't, there's no ways I could leave him out there in the middle of the dark. So he rode with me, which made things a lot slower, not because he was slow, but just because my light was not shining for two of us. And going down those treacherous downhills, very, very rocky descents. How can it's very dangerous by just by yourself? He's got no light. So what we got there, half past three in the morning, got to the finish. And it's so underwhelming because when you're a kid, when you're eight years old and you take your own dishes to the dishwasher, you get a standing ovation. Right? And I don't think that sets us up for life to get half hours when we do something. But you finish this incredible race, five hundred miles and forty five thousand feet of climbing. And 66 hours later, you get to the finish line and there's no one there, not a single person. A lady walks out of a dark hotel that's fully booked, by the way, no accommodation, and she gives you a small little medal. And then I asked her, is beer anything? She says, no. So I stepped on the floor of the village hall, concrete floor. So out of, after all of that, start having to sleep on concrete floors. So the visualization of seeing my wife there, the beers, the, the provider, nothing, it was nothing like that. It was absolute darkness and at seven in the morning the guy that i had met and rode with most of the time who was there when my bike broke dave he woke me up and he said let's have a beer and without blinking i was like yes let's have beers <laughs> and it was seven in the morning we went to the bar across the road had a coffee to just break the ice with the owner and said to him okay can we have beers and he said no problem so we watched other riders come in because we were staying at the finish line and then we just enjoyed ourselves uh, my wife arrived at about midday and our accommodation, we booked in that little town called Capilera, which is an incredibly beautiful town in Spain. The second highest town in Spain. I would encourage anyone to go there. We spent a couple of nights there. It was unbelievable. So, yeah, that was it. Amazing. Amazing. <laughs> There's so many pieces to that story. You've just told that in a beautiful way. But in, in my mind of hearing like all the, the things that go into being a human being, there's, there's, there's firstly the gauntlet, as the old expression goes, from knighthood. Someone saying, yeah, you, you can't do that in a day. And there's something in you that says, challenge accepted. Yeah. And I love that. That's that a real, that's the fierce competitor coming through. That, you know, that's the fight state. That's a neurological yeah. fight state about 
no, I can go to this problem. That probably isn't possible. I can still go to this problem. And it shows you, doesn't it, when we adopt a certain state, a certain, and I would say state, not just the mindset, but it's actually an emotional state as well as a psychological state, that so many things are possible. Now, it's not about wishful thinking because there's no such things. Wishful thinking and reality are different things. But there is this determinedness and that really sets up because if our mind in a certain way, so is our body and, and vice versa. And of course, this is the work I do about how minds and bodies align. And if our body is functioning very well and our minds function very well, our performance is normally so much, so much better. And if one is out of whack, particularly the belief system, like, oh God, that's a long way and I'm tired or whatever that story you might tell yourself, your body listens to that story too. So it's fascinating to hear how you align those two. And I was also intrigued when you said about the, the climb. The guy said, oh, that's tough. And, I, and yeah. I've done, I've been a little bit off-road myself. And for you to say, I don't even remember, I was just flowing. It shows you getting into, and of course, in elite sport, or in most sport actually, there is a zone. We all talk about zone. Yeah. Neurologically, it's called flow state. Mihaly Chisense Mihai was the, the guy who studied this stuff. But it's when you're absolutely focused, it feels like you could just keep going. There are, you're aware of stuff, but you're so zoned in. It's, it's an exquisite human state to be in. And, and it's lovely that you were able to go there. I'm fascinated. Is, I'm just curious as a question. Do you, do you think that's how you are? Or do you think that was coming out of that pit of adversity that got you there? Mm, that's a good question. I think that's how, how I am with things I know. I think things I know I can do. I, th I think that's, I'm, I'm made comfortable in those situations. I know that I can, I can, I've got fight in me. I'm quite stubborn. I don't give up easily, especially with sports. I've always been like that. Even I've, I've done some very stupid things in my life, like riding through sickness and I should have stayed at home and I could have damaged my heart tremendously, but I was stubborn. I kept going. And I, and, you know, I think thinking back at that, I think, what, what were you trying to prove? You could have really hurt yourself. I'm that kind of stubborn sometimes when it comes to those things and going to these races like this race was my first experience like this. And there are people there who've done tons of this stuff. And I met some incredible human beings who recycled from China to the UK. <laughs> so I know it's just, it's like you think to yourself, what are you guys doing? It's just, and, and, I, and, and it's, there's always a bigger fish, isn't there? But I think that is who, who I am. And when I know how to deal with it, that I'm, I'm quite confident that way. Yeah, it's, it's, it's lovely to hear and it's still, it, it doesn't diminish anything. It's just, that's an interesting question, I think, for us listening and for you to observe. And I, I, what I find fascinating is that we really can do so much in life. I, I really think our human potential is, is really quite big. We, we're clever species, us humans. Now, some of us are stronger, some of us are fitter, some of us are not. But there's so much we can do if we leverage our natural tendencies and skill sets, whether you are a people person, whether you're a, a stubborn, stoic person, you can leverage those natural gifts. It takes self-awareness. And, and, and for me, all the coaching work I do is we start at self-awareness because when you got yeah. that, then you can know, ah, oh, I'm stubborn. So that means I can push on, but we need to be careful because that could hurt you. So self-awareness tells you how to be, how stubborn should I be today? Yeah. That's just such a beautiful story. And I love the fact that there's, what I heard in that story was camaraderie as well from the, the people in the town, the other bike riders, your friend who'd lost the light. And, and it's, it's just lovely. And, and I'm really intrigued, isn't it? When we put ourselves under certain conditions, which aren't the reg, regular life, I'm so busy. <laughs> I've got so many things yeah. to do. We, we really connect with people. That's a, such a beautiful story. And one last thing. How good did those croissants taste? Not. 
<laughs> they were phenomenal. Everything you sometimes it's it, it got quite hot towards the end because the rain was day one. But and when you're very hot and you're very tired, you don't feel like eating anything. Your body doesn't want to eat. But you need to, and you can't take any more of these sports gels and sugar stuff. You can't do it anymore. Your body just says, "I was craving fruit." Every time we stopped, if I was there with another cyclist, they would laugh at me because I'd walk out with peaches and apples. It's what I was craving. I, I, could, I could not eat another bocadilla or another sandwich or another, I could not. But those croissants were phenomenal. So the, the shorts I had had pockets in them and the cycling shorts, and I just had them in foil in my pockets. And when the time was right, you look forward to them. It's almost like a treat. So you say to yourself, okay, top of the mountain, I'm going to have a croissant. Yeah. And then it's almost like you're telling your brain, you yeah. deserve it. When I, you get I lo- there, you, I love you deserve it. <laughs> I love it. And the reason I ask is because I, I know uh, other people I've spoken to, both in my professional space and personal, who've been to adversity and maybe have been able to eat for a while. And that first taste of food, or it's not just a croissant, it's a croissant. And it's yeah, amazing. It and it's so curious how these intense experiences make things more present, whether your taste buds, your sensory receptors. It's, it's absolutely wonderful. When that mind is clearer, it's, it really yeah. hones in on what's going on. That's fascinating. Yeah, I know. I must say, I was thinking just this weekend because I went on a ride with some friends. I got a group of guys I ride with here on a Sunday in, uh, in the UK. And um, we're not doing massive distances at all, maybe doing 50 miles. And I'm really thinking to myself, how did I do? Because <laughs> I'm not in that mindset now. A month ago, I was doing 500 miles. Now I'm doing 50 and I think to myself, how on earth did I do 500? And it's that mindset because going into that, going into that 500 mile race, you've thought about it a million times. And you're, you are, you've planned and prepared, as you mentioned earlier. And you've set yourself, your mind is set at this is what it is. This is it. So you become comfortable with the uncomfortable very quickly. But now, back to reality, I'm not planning for anything big at the moment. I've got a couple of things I might be doing next year. But yeah, 50 miles seems, man, this is, why am I doing this? <laughs> but actually, <laughs> it's quite a long way, yeah. yeah I know. It's, it's, I um, mean, that, yeah. in just a, in that. Sports science, or certainly that side of things, we'd call it tapering and putting back on the mileage. Go to there is a there is some technical way that you can build and understand your distance around that. But what I find really interesting in terms of overlaying this story that I'm just it's just love such a great story. But overlay into life and into business, what are you planning for? Because if you've got a 500 mile race physically, or you've got a quote uh, a metaphoric 500 mile race of a business, maybe you're going to grow something over the next five years. Yeah. If you don't plan it in that context, you think it's going to be like a 50 miler, then you're up for trouble. If you're not planning for the long haul, like how is this going to roll? What do I need in place? What do I need to get me there? Then it's going to fall, fall short. And we do live in a short-term mentality in our current culture with the nature of technology and the pace of life. It, it does, I think, um, predicate a sense of things going to come quickly. I do see, and I love that story you said about being a kid getting applause for putting stuff in a dishwasher. <laughs> in the real tough life, people are like, yeah, you did a race, get over it. Yeah, exactly. exactly. And, and there's something really interesting, is it, about not needing that, that, let's say, all that applause and finding your own internal gratification about, yeah, yeah. I did that. And I'm sleeping on the floor and it sucks. And that's still fine as well. <laughs> yeah. And, and you find beautiful. people would have complained, I'm sure. Other people might have, or I don't think anyone in this race did. If you're not set at that mindset, you would have said, what? I'm sleeping on a floor. I've done this incredible racing. And that's it. And, I, and I'm, I like what you said there in the beginning, because it really got me thinking about planning and being prepared. And I know you and I have spoken before about 
the clarity that I saw with this race, visualizing myself finishing it a million times before I got there. I never once thought I wasn't going to do it. There were moments in the race when that bad luck happened, but not once before the race that I think I'm not finishing this. And I, my transition from employment to starting my own business, I was not that prepared. I was not that well planned. I didn't plan all that well. I knew what I wanted to do, and, but I didn't actually have the steps in place I needed to have. And I often say that I wish I had the clarity I have with a race like this with my own business. And I realize now why it's now almost two years down the line with my own business and I'm a lot more planned ahead. In fact, we might be buying a new business, a, 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 a second one. But it's just, I know where I'm going now, where I didn't when I started. And I think thinking back as to visualizing myself in my business, I can see where I want to be. But it's not as clear and I'm not as confident as I am with my cycling. So what you, what you said there was really good. I want to know, so when you were visualizing that race, so we really understand it, you've, you've, and you said you've visualized it many times, having some beers, crossing the line, seeing your wife, all these pieces. What were the emotions in your pre-visualization experience? Euphoria, achievements for those emotions of, yeah. And what does your body feel like? Could you... What, what were you feeling? So you're visualizing this stuff happening and you've got those emotions. What did your body connect with? I don't know. I think my body would say it's tired. <laughs> so the as race, in or... the visualization part, so the pre-rehearsal, you're, you're thinking like this is going to happen. You've got all that great stuff. Oh yeah, just excited. Oh yeah, very, very excited. Just an excited, excited feeling. Yeah. yeah so it's so interesting. Isn't it? And this is uh, the point I want to make is that if we're in, a, in an abstraction such as I can see myself finishing this race or I can see myself with my success at work or in my business. If it's only an abstraction, which is not dissimilar to a dream, it's a sort of an abstract construct in the mind where if it's got emotion laid in, then it becomes a felt experience as well. Then, and then when you've got a physiological response, oh, I'm actually maybe moving, I feel the joy in my heart, I'm actually perhaps jumping around a bit, it becomes tangible, what we say embodied. And I think this is such an important part that people miss when they're doing pre, pre-rehearsal visualization, whether it's business or sport, it, it doesn't matter. If you want to go, and I hear someone only do the, I can picture it, I need you to feel it. Because if you yeah. can feel it emotionally and feel it in your body, there's so much data that comes back to the brain through the interoceptive signals and, and basically becomes yeah. more real and tangible. And for you, it might be something that you can take this beautiful experience and overlay it into your next chapter of work and business. And do do the process, right? You do the drills, you do the warm up, you, you do everything, you do the visualization and the embodied experience. I suspect your 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 whole mind body system will go. Yeah, we know how to deal with adversity. <laughs> we know how to deal with the really good results. Yeah, yeah no, and I can actually see that happening as you're speaking. I can see that happening because I know the the feeling I get when I'm helping people. It's such a it's a buzz, and it's a, it's a, almost like a drug. You want so much more of it. So seeing and visualizing it now more and more often is is what I'm what I'm doing without thinking about it, which is a really good, really nice feeling. It does get you all tingly, I I guess is the word I'm looking for. But yeah, it makes perfect sense. Beautiful. And what all tingly tells us it's a somatic feedback. Somatic means whole body. So if there's tingles, there's there's stuff happening in the, the in the cells, in the skin, in the in the internal system. So that's an embodied experience, just yeah. like crossing a finish line, which is a real embodied experience. If we're pre-rehearsing something, the more embodied the whole thing is, 
the more powerful it is for our beautiful predictive brain to go. Yeah, I can make that become, because I already know that's a, te- a felt experience. I can connect yeah. with that. Beautiful. Uh, to summarize, 500 miles, 66 hours, up and down a whole load of mountains in ridiculously heat, apart from the rain day, <laughs> and a broken bike. What did you learn? I learned that we are more capable of, we're not more capable than we think we are. Riding in those mountains too, the one side is you f- you learn that you, you, you're capable of a lot more than you think you are, or you're in the face of adversity, we can all get through it. We've got the tools, those, those thoughts that we're telling ourselves, those stories we're telling ourselves during that adversity, it's only stories we're telling ourselves. You've got a group of fans, cheerleaders behind you, thinking that you're doing an amazing thing. It's only you telling yourself, and if you're able to identify, hold on, that's just a thought that's triggering a really negative emotion. So that thought, that thought can do one and get out of there. That's really, really powerful. And also, when you're riding in all these mountains, at these beautiful places on earth, you realize you're not as important as you think. And if you were, yeah, or not, yeah, it doesn't matter. That those mountains have been there for millions of years, and life goes on, and people carry on with everything else. And yes, you're the, you're the main actor in your own story, but actually, you're a very small extra in everyone else's stories. Just gotta just be, just just be happy with it. I love that. Yes, <laughs> I'm chuckling because we do get so caught up in our own story and our life, and and of course it's important what we do. I care so much about what I do. I love the work I do. Yeah. And yet, at the same time, yes, at times I've been in the mountains, I've been skiing or different things, but out of the ocean. And you think, I am so utterly insignificant. I'm only here for, <laughs> if I get 100 years, that's going to be a good one. These, these, this stuff's been here for like millennia. And <laughs> it's, it's, it's quite nice, isn't it, to feel utterly humble and small. And for me, there's a deep respect. So when I go into the, into the sea, I try to connect with those billions of tons of water. I'm like, I'm just a single drop right now. And it's, isn't it yeah. beautiful how wonderful that is? <laughs> and I think yeah. there's something relieving for me when I've had those experiences. And it sounds like you, about... You can get over yourself and be with the experience, whether that's mm. the bike race, whether that's overcoming a challenge, whatever it is. Because if we're too caught up in the identity, the ego, the story, and the story isn't that healthy, then yeah. having connection to a bigger story, the story of the mountains, the story of the race, or whatever it might be, can really help you breathe and go, this is an experience. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So amazing. Your story is incredible. I'm so delighted that we came on and we, we got into the nitty gritty because when you first told me, I was like, what did you do? <laughs> and, and of course, for, for everyone listening, there's, there's so much to take from a story. We're humans. We, we dial into people. We have empathy. We, under, we can connect. Yeah. And adversity, planning, visualization, embodiment, all of these things, they, they happen in every aspect of our life. So Clayton, your story is an example of that. It's a real one. And, and for me, I'm going to live into some of those experiences you've said. Take the lesson. So thank you so much for joining me today. Oh, thanks all for having me. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you. Cool. My dear listener, I hope that you're either going to jump on the 500-mile bike race, maybe you'll go on a, a, a five-minute walk. <laughs> Who knows? But get active, get moving. Understand that these stories are not just interesting. They are other people doing really great things, just like you can do and overcoming adversity, learning, all these sorts of things. Us human beings are very clever. I trust you can take some of what we've covered today and impart it into your life. Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed the episode, please subscribe. And if a friend would benefit from hearing this, 
do send it on to them as well. If you would like to get in touch yourself, then you can go to my website, which is saljeffries.com, spelled S-A-L-J-E-F-F-E-R-I-E-S, saljeffries.com. Hit the Get In Touch link, and there you can send me a direct message. If you'd like to go one step further and learn whether coaching could help you overcome a challenge or a block in your life, then do reach out and I offer a call where we can discuss how this may be able to help you. Until the next time, take care.